When I was a young boy of not more than about six years of age, I believe, perhaps even younger than that, I had a pretty serious phobia about going to the dentist. Some of you maybe can relate to that. For me, it had a particular origin. I, one of my very first memories of life was going up the steps of the Baptist Church in Tarrytown, New York, and hastily running toward the church and tripping as I'm going up the steps, the stone steps, I might add, and landing on my teeth, my front teeth on those steps. Uh, thereafter, there followed a, um, a, a, a very frightening experience of oral surgery. And that was, I'm sure, the start of this whole dental phobia. I might suggest that accident is part of my phobia about churches, too. But in any event, that little accident, which required some simple uh, surgery on my mouth, still shows up in my nightmares to this day. I, I sometimes am are, are awakened at night by this vision of these really big, fat hands holding these pointy instruments coming down toward my, my face. This tremendous sense of powerlessness before this great power coming my way. Now, that syndrome got even worse for me later on in life when my uh, parents enrolled me under the care of a dentist who was not much up on that whole Novocaine innovation. Uh, although, frankly, he was taking some medication himself, I could always smell the alcohol in his breath when he worried about it. And, and he would drill into my teeth, right? You know, just into my teeth, and I could feel the pain going through the roots and right all the way down to the very balls of my feet, and I would sometimes, I'm just a little kid, right, I'm squirming to sit still under this pain, and I'm actually, tears are coming down my face, I'm crying, and he would slap me across the face. I later discovered he did the same thing to my sister. This did not help with my phobia. Right, this was, this was a, an incredibly traumatic experience. Now, the dentist I go to today is, is very different than this, right? I mean, I am not exaggerating when I tell you that it is just short of going to a spa treatment to see this dentist I see now. I mean, the chair is like this amazing lounger. There's soft music playing. Uh, he comes in, he begins to speak, he's a handsome man, his voice is soothing. I feel better already. My mouth feels better before he's even asked me to say, ah, just being in the presence of this particular man, this kind, uh, chair-side manner that he has. And there is enormous strength and healing in this man's touch. And I emerge from his office with a healthier mouth and a brighter smile and a, a great sense of relief that it was nothing like the experience I remember as a child. And where I feared that other guy, I just flourish under the care of this particular doc. Now, why am I telling you about all of this, you're probably wondering. It's because I am so old, I can only talk about my doctors. No, not really. I'm telling you about all of this because I think it provides something of an initial illustration of some important themes 
surrounding the topic that we're going to be talking about throughout this season ahead. I'm talking with you this morning on these subjects because we're going to be delving into the immensely important arena of power, the subject of power. Like healthcare, I suppose, power is all around us. It has many different kinds of practitioners with different sorts of effects, and it is much disputed. So there is a relationship, I suppose, between dentistry and doctoring and the subject of, of power. Uh, how you think about power depends a great deal on who has it and on who has you in their hands. It is all about the hands, as we'll unfold in weeks ahead more and more. It's all about the hands, whether those hands happen to be cruel or crazy or criminal or kind or creative hands, as we'll talk this very day. From our childhood on, we are taught to view powerful hands with a certain amount of suspicion, I think. I think you probably would agree with this if you thought about your own experience. From a very young age, uh, depending on what age we are, we were exposed to images of powers like Darth Vader or maybe like Voldemort uh, from the Harry Potter stories or like uh, the Dark Lord Sauron from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Or we meet Cinderella's stepmother, right? Or we meet the Winter Witch of Narnia or, or perhaps Cruella de Vil. And these are some of our earliest images of very powerful people when, when, when we're children. Later on, we, we learn that these images actually have their enfleshment in real people out there in the world. I mean, there are despots out there, and there are dictators. There are even dastardly dentists, which some of us discover, who, who genuinely exploit the weak and, and abuse the meek. And chances are that you probably had some authority figures in your life that slapped you on occasion and, and left you with a bad experience, a bad taste in your mouth, a tremble in your heart. You may have seen abuses of power in your family or in your church or in your job or out there in the government. You don't have to look very far these days for the images of this kind of very heavy kind of power. Uh, Forbes in its most recent list of the most powerful uh, people in the world lists, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS on the list as, as an image of power. And we, we hear about uh, North Korea's King uh, Kim Jong-un is on that list. The number one person on the list in Forbes right now is a person of immense power that many of us associate uh, with as, as an overly heavy-handed kind of power. So, so all of these impressions, they, they take their toll on us, don't they? I mean, subtly and steadily, they build up in us, and they begin to affect our sense of what power is all about. Consciously or unconsciously, I want to suggest to you, some of us come to believe that power is really about the struggle for domination, right? And so our marriages and our sibling relationships and our workplaces and our social circles and uh, 
And sometimes even our churches, they become these places where, where we're, we're, we're aimed at trying to figure out who has the upper hand here, who has the greater privileges, who, who gets the superior advantage. Even the way that we, we drive on the roads today or, or conduct our sporting life in many instances becomes this Darwinian or Nietzschean or reality show contest for power. And in many cases, it feels like a zero-sum game, right? It feels like there are winners and there are losers. There are victors and there are victims. And either you're the person who holds the drill or you're the person who gets the drill. And it's not hard for most of us to figure out which side of that equation we want to be on, right? It's not hard for us to Figure out we would be much rather be the person who stands over others than take our chances at being the one under others. Or maybe we run the other direction. You know, sometimes I think um, we find ourselves so uh, overwhelmed by these heavy images of the use of power that we actually run away from all power. We evade it as much as we possibly can. Power seems so intrinsically selfish or uh, damaging to other people or corrupting even to the holder of the power that we want none of it. We'd like to be instead more like those characters that we see in the storybooks or the Hollywood movies who are, who are the gentle and kind people, the nice children, right? The ones who stay out of the limelight, who don't want the pressure of competing and fighting because we think to ourselves, you know, goodness is about the quest for peace and love, not power. Power is evil's thing. Power is evil's thing. So some of us, we purposely stay away from leadership positions. We purposely stay away from politics. We avoid big institutions and all the other risky places where power seems to be particularly moving. And, and, and some of us are even thinking, as I'm talking about this subject, you could use some Novocaine because you're a little tired of even the discussion of this particular topic. So here's a question that you might ask somebody today. What's been their experience of power? You know, has it made you a power seeker or has it tended to make you a power avoider? Talk with somebody about that. Uh, before the end of today. As we start to think about this subject in a deeper way together, I want to touch on just a few key ideas that we are going to take with us all throughout this series and really build on in, in I hope, a helpful way. And all of these key ideas really fundamentally grow out of the passage of Scripture that is our text for today from Genesis chapter 1 and, and then on into chapter 2 and following. Because these particular passages challenge and channel, I think, helpfully, the way we are to think about the subject of power. And the first idea that I want to stress is that in its purest form, power is not evil, but good. In fact, power is the good, as in godlike capacity to make stuff happen, good stuff happen, that would never happen otherwise. 
And Genesis 1 lays this out for us. It starts by describing a time, or actually a moment before time, when nothing had happened. Nothing exists but God. The first words of the Old Testament are, as you know it, recite it with me, in the beginning, God, right? God is the defining reality. He is the only thing there. And some of the very first words of the New Testament actually ring similarly. Uh, John puts it as the, in the first verse of his famous prologue to his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. It's like you have shown up for, for worship here very, very early in the morning, right? You got the setting of your clock wrong, and you showed up really, really early, and the whole place is dark. You walk into the worship space, and, and it, everything's in shadows, and it's completely quiet, and you're all by yourself, and you're actually grateful for this moment of peace. And you sit down, and all of a sudden, the lights come on. And suddenly you realize there's a vast choir of people there, and sound fills the air, and the, the noise of wonderful instruments blending together, and the entire place is filled in this blaze and blare of absolute glory. And, and your, your very body is humming with the power and the beauty of this particular moment. This is the description that that Genesis gives us of the start of all things. Emerging out of the purposeful power of God. And, and this glory about the use of power, this wonderful image of power is something we've got to hold on to as we walk through our lives. Because what, what God is in his essence is not just love, but this enormous potency for good. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory, says the psalmist. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the psalmist says elsewhere, and it's true. And the entire remainder of the book, uh, the opening chapter of Genesis, is this ode to the way God takes nothing and keeps making it something more by the power of his voice, by the power of his will, literally by the power of his word. God says, let there be light, and bang, the place is filled with multiplying light, right? Energy just moving out everywhere. God says, let there be sky, and water, and land, and stars, and moons, and these things separate, and they take shape, and they become solid, and they're set into place, because this is power in its pure and original form. It's the good Godlike capacity to make stuff happen that's wonderful that wouldn't happen otherwise. Remember that. Remember that. John's gospel affirms this idea again. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In other words, by his Word, God makes something out of nothing. He turns darkness into light. He gives life a place to stand and water to drink and a sky to reach for and stars by which to chart its course. God doesn't demand, I order this, like a general. God doesn't command, make it so, 
like the captain of the starship Enterprise. God doesn't reprimand. You better do this like a worked-up parent. God doesn't speak in the tight-fisted imperative at all in this book of Genesis. Instead, God speaks in what uh, people who are familiar with language call the jussive mood. The jussive mood, which is this unworried, unself-conscious, completely open-handed tone. As my friend Andy Crouch points out, the statement, let there be, is this jussive tone. It does not have to assert power. It just assumes it. It does not have to impose power. It just indwells it. And with the breath of his uh, word and the sweep of God's creative hands, God simply and graciously makes room for life. Let there be. Let there be. And this is amazing stuff, if you think about it. Because, you see, God, back when it was just in the beginning, nothing but God is doing just fine. <laughs> right? He's got everything in himself. He is perfect company for himself for all of eternity. God is totally self-sufficient. And yet, God says, let there be more life, more love. Let there be. And I just love how vivid this idea becomes in Genesis chapter 2 when, when we're told, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Do you see how gracious this exercise of power is? Do you see how different it is from the clenched Fisted, commanding, demanding, reprimanding, conquering, standing over, drilling into others images that we've come to associate with power. Instead, we see God taking his hands and scooping up earth between his fingers like you do in the garden and breathing life into it. Let there be humanity. But power, in its original sense, is not simply this godlike capacity to make things happen, good things happen. As the Bible understands it, God uses his power for a very express purpose. Power is for the flourishing of creation. That is what power is meant to be used for. It's for the flourishing of creation. Listen again to the words of Genesis. And God said, let the water teem. 
Let it teem with living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures, the livestock and the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. Are you seeing this? Are you picturing this, this wonderful imagery? One of the major messages of the Bible is God does not simply want to see his creation surviving. That's, that's just the tragedy of our time, I think. We've gotten to the point where our main focus now is how can we survive? How can we just keep ourselves alive on this earth? How can we put up a high enough fence how can we deal with the, with the effects of our industrial processes? I mean, how do we just make sure we stay alive? How do we survive? God's intention is always so far beyond surviving. It's aimed at thriving. How can I make life team? <laughs> how can I make it abundant and fruitful and, and flourishing? God uses his power here to create a world of radical and replicating abundance. There's teeming and multiplying and overflowing fruitfulness in the story. His power isn't directed at securing himself against other people. His power isn't aimed at celebrating himself above everybody else. His power is not used to exploit others. The great message of the first two chapters of the Bible is that at the root of this universe that we're living in is this being who believes that power should be used to help everyone and every good thing flourish. Just flourish. Incidentally, that's the theme of the last two chapters of the Bible. Did you notice that? It ends this way, too. Right? In a garden again. Where there's a tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations and a river is flowing. And now there's a magnificent city there. The outcome of creative hands doing as God has done. And Christ's very first miracle in the middle of the whole story, it's for flourishing too. Do you remember what the first miracle was? It happened to be at a wedding. It was in a place called Cana. The water, the wine had run out. The party was petering out. And, and Jesus hears about this through his mom. And Jesus takes water and he turns it into gallon after gallon of the very finest wine. He, he takes that party that is failing and he makes it a party that is what? Flourishing. By the way, this stone is from Cana in Galilee. From Cana in Galilee. Now, this is an enormously important theme to think about when you consider the subject of power. Because God doesn't just stop with using his power. He does something even more amazing still. He transfers some of that power to you and to me. Genesis 1 puts it this way. So God created mankind in his own image. 
God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the birds and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Do you see what's going on here? God makes human beings his image bearers. We bear the image of the creative, of the creator in ourselves. And one of the principal aspects of being made in the image of God is that we are now rulers as he is. We're not just bystanders to life on this planet. We've been endowed with the capacity to make stuff happen, to make this world what it will be. We've been asked to give names to, 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 to things. That is to shape the identity of his creatures. We've been entrusted with the conservation and the cultivation and the use of vast resources. Each of us have, have been empowered to, to have an ability to be true helpmates or competitive enemies with one another. And each of us can join Christ in helping this world become the flourishing garden that God clearly intends for it to be, or else we can surrender ourselves to the forces that are making it a desolated wilderness. We have that choice. And this is the third big idea we're going to carry through this series. Power is a sacred trust that we will steward well or we will handle poorly. What do you want your role to be as you take hold of God's image in you? Many, many years ago, when I lived in Northern Ireland, I met a man named Billy Gallagher, and with his story, I'd like to close. In those years, Northern Ireland was a tremendous Nietzschean kind of struggle for power. There were paramilitaries, uh, organizations, both Catholic and Protestant, constantly at war. There were tanks and other armored vehicles rolling through the streets. I remember uh, bomb blasts and shootings in my neighborhood. I remember being held up at gunpoint and having my vehicle searched for bombs. It was just a time of incredible crisis and conflict. But in the midst of this little neighborhood, there was this man, Billy Gallagher. Billy had been a plumber in the course of his life. He had used his power in that way. He had been a creative person. He'd unstopped drains for people. He had made it possible for water to flow from people's taps. But over the years, Billy had suffered from macular degeneration. And by the time I met him, he was completely blind. His world had disappeared, visually speaking. But in Billy's heart, there still beat this capacity and passion to do creative things. And so we started a senior citizen center in our blighted neighborhood. There was just, there were no community organizations to speak of. And Billy led this wonderful senior citizen center and I partnered with him in this. And I learned so many lessons from him. And over time, it just brought flourishing into that neighborhood. An amazing kind of hope and light and love to so many people who would consign themselves to living so alone. Billy is gone from this earth now, but that neighborhood that he ministered in has utterly changed for the good. And I think often, as I remember him, of a poem he once taught me, a poem about the sacred trust of power. 
Isn't it strange that princes and kings and clowns that caper in sawdust rings are ordinary folk like you and me, are builders of eternity? To each is given a, a bag of tools, an hourglass, and a book of rules. And each must build, ere his time has flown, a stumbling block or a stepping stone. The great questions to begin pondering are these. What are the bag, what's in the bag of tools that God has given you? What has he given you? Who do you know that needs a stepping stone? And will you be cruel or overly cautious or truly creative with the power that is in your hands? Please pray with me. Gracious God and Father, you who are the creator of it all, thank you for making us in your image. Inspire us and guide us as we seek to be people who exercise that enormously creative power that this world still so needs. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.